Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Ahab, one of Israel's most wicked kings, had 400 prophets standing in front of him, and they all said exactly the same thing. He had asked them, should I go up to Ramoth Gilead, a city that Syria, the enemy, had taken away from Israel? Should I go up and fight? Will the Lord give the city into my hand? And all 400 prophets said, go up. If you ask one prophet here, should I go up? The prophet says, thus says the Lord, go up. Ahab moves to the second prophet, should I go up? The Lord says, Ahab, go up. To the third, to the fourth, to the fifth, to all 400 prophets. And in unison they say, Ahab, go up. The Lord is with you. The city will be given into your hands. Ahab had another king there with him, the king of the other part of the kingdom named Jehoshaphat. And he asked that one last prophet be brought in. So they bring in Micaiah. And they ask Micaiah, Micaiah, 400 prophets, they all say, go up. The Lord is with us. Micaiah, should I go up? And Micaiah says, no, don't go up. As the 401st prophet present at this gathering before King Ahab, Micaiah's word was 0.25% about <laughs> of the thrust of the whole message being given by God according to these prophets. He was one quarter in a hundred dollars of prophecy. It wasn't much. And he alone said, do not go up, while all the others said, do. Ahab did not like this minority report and had him thrown in prison. And then he went up and he died. 400 prophets lied. Micaiah told the truth. An arrow struck him between his armor, and Ahab died in that battle and did not take Ramoth-Gilead. What we learn from this scene in the Old Testament is that no fact in this world can be changed by the mere force of your opinion or desire or speech. The modern word of faith movement, some of you are familiar with this movement, part of my family came out of this movement, it is sadly the face of evangelical Christianity in the world today. Most people encounter this sort of Christianity. The word of faith movement claims that if you proclaim with sufficient fervency certain things, such as your own health or wealth or prosperity, God is obligated to bring that into existence. In other words, if you don't like a state of affairs in the world, believe hard enough and especially say it hard enough. Speak it and it will be true. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. You don't find that in the scriptures. The word of faith movement equates the idea of faith with this generating creative capacity to just speak things into existence as if you yourself were a small god in Genesis 1, creating the world as you want it to be. Faith only works when we attach it to what God says. <laughs> it's not a blank check to make whatever you want it to be. It simply doesn't work that way. If, if, if it were, 
than 400 prophets speaking fervently, and I'm sure believing what they said, would have brought about the success of the conqueror of Ramath-Gilead for Ahab. But it didn't, and he died. So a word of faith teacher like Kenneth Copeland in his pamphlet, How You Call It Is How It Will Be, writes, What comes out of our hearts through the words of our mouths determines what comes to pass in our lives. It's the absolute truth. And it causes us grief. And we have to say with that one, even if it's the minority report, Micaiah, the prophet, that's a lying spirit. It's not true. Faith is a powerful thing, but faith is not a creating thing. Faith clings on to the promise of God. Faith grabs onto realities as God has brought them about. That is the whole power of faith. It reflects God's reality, not our own, that we are bringing about. If what we say corresponds to God's reality as He says it, it will come to pass. If we say anything with any degree of fire and fervency that does not correspond to God's perfect will and what He brings about in the world, it simply isn't going to happen. It's not how faith works. The Apostle John today in our text is going to take that idea that just saying doesn't do anything in itself. <laughs> He's going to take that and that's going to be the thrust of this passage and next week as well because three times he's going to talk about someone who says something. But then he says, I don't care if they say it or not. I'm looking for the evidence that it's fact. I want to know that it's true, that it's real. It's not just about if you say it. It's not just about if you say it hard enough. In this case, saying, I know God. You can stand in your room and repeat that a hundred times like a mantra with fire and fervency in your soul, and it does not change anything if you don't know God. Facts triumph over our small words, and that will be John's point here today. So let's see that. What matters is what God says, not really what we say here. 1 John chapter 2, let's begin here in verse 3. And by this, we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And by this we know, says John. And again, by this we may know, he says. Toward the end of this letter, he'll give us a sort of thesis statement for the purpose of the whole letter. In chapter 5, when he says, I write these things to you, believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So our present passage shares the purpose of this entire book. All of this letter is so that you may know if you know God. If you know God, John wants you to know that and to rest assured in that. And if you don't know God, John wants to expose that through this letter. 
That's the same purpose we're finding in these few verses we're looking at today. Pretty much all of us here, most of us in our city, most of us in our state, most of us in our country say, I know God. And referring to the Christian God. And John is saying, I don't care if you say that or not. It's fine, say that, you know. But I want to know, is it true? The words don't bring it about. The purpose here is then to give an assurance to you who are truly believers. God doesn't want you to live your life not knowing, am I saved? Am I not? That's not the way God wants you to live your life. Maybe some of you this morning feel tormented. Am I a believer? Am I not? And this has gone on for a long time and you can't find a sense of assurance. This letter and these verses are for you. That you may know. By this we may know. And on the other hand, these verses and this letter serve as a warning to you who say, I know God. But the evidences of that are simply not there in your life. This is meant to expose that to you. We saw in chapter 1 that it's possible for us to, quote, deceive ourselves. And so God in his mercy gives you these verses today to help to expose what's really there. Look, it's, it's a binary choice here. Either you know God or you do not know God. One of those things is true of every one of us in this room. And John wants you to know which of those are true. Therefore, we have this passage today. So this passage is to assure you who are true believers, and it is to expose you who are false believers. So let's see that in our text, beginning here with John's desire, predominant here, to assure those of you who are true Christians that you are true Christians. Look at this verse 3, the beginning of our text. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Skip down to the end in verses 5 and 6. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You can see the sort of person who's in view in this text just by how he describes him. Verse 3, those of us who have come to know him. Uh, verse 5 speaks of those who are in him. These are just different ways of saying true Christians. A true Christian has come to know him. A true Christian is in him. You may wonder, who is the him? He doesn't say God or Jesus, so you have to figure that out from the context. Honestly, it could be either one. Both would fit. My guess is that it's referring really to God the Father because just last chapter, the end of chapter 1, you remember the focus was on your fellowship with God the Father. He said, God is light, and if you claim to have fellowship with God, you have to walk in the light. So now we're in chapter 2, and he has spoken of Jesus quite a lot, but my guess is his focus is still on the Father. And so here he's saying, I want to talk to those of you in this room, those of you here listening to this, who have come to know God and who are in God. Another way he puts it is those of us whose the love of God is perfected in us truly. And that most likely what he's saying there is if you're truly a Christian, then your love 
toward God, the love of God, your love toward God has been brought to maturity. It's not some deficient thing. It's not some useless thing that has no effect in your life. He's saying if you're a true believer, these are all ways of saying it, then you, number one here, you know God personally. I know God. You know God personally. Number two, your love for God is a real, mature, living, vibrant thing. Number three, you are in him, meaning you spiritually abide in God the Father, and he abides in you, as we'll see later. But those are all just different ways of getting at the same point. Here, John is referring to those of you who are truly Christians. True Christians meet all these criteria. Now, the first thing that we know about this group of Christians, true Christians that he's talking about, do you notice that they claim to know God, right? So here we are, verse 6, whoever says he abides in him. John has in mind there someone who does abide in him. But he says, but if you claim that. So we're going to see when we get to those who are not true Christians that this is exactly identical with both groups. There is no difference whatsoever. If you're a true Christian here or you're a false Christian here, we all claim to be true Christians, of course. We all say we are in him. So both groups are saying the same thing, but what we're interested in especially is, okay, if that's possible for someone to deceive themselves, for someone to say, I know God, and maybe even to genuinely believe that, and yet, in John's words, not to know God, if that's possible, don't you want to know that you're not doing that? I certainly do. That's why this passage is here. How can I know that I'm not tricking myself? Most all of us have had friends, even very close friends, who have at one time said, I know God and have been zealous for the Lord. And then time goes on and difficulties arise and they turn away and they renounce Jesus and they live however they want. How do I know that's not me? How do I know that I know God? You can't say, well, I claim to. And John says, it's sort of irrelevant. Everyone claims to. How do I know that I know God, that I'm a true Christian? Good of you to ask. And by this we know, that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. It's simple. True Christians keep God's commandments. You see that in the text? I didn't make that up. It's right there in that verse. Now, we do need to be very thoughtful how we define two important words right there. What does it mean to keep? And what does it mean, his commandments? So let's look at those two things here. What does it mean to keep? You are not a Christian if you do not keep God's commandments. But what do we mean by the word keep? It's very important. Because someone could say, well, does keep mean always, absolutely, with zero exceptions? You cannot be a Christian unless you live a perfect life. In that case, I'm closing my Bible up. I'm going home. <laughs> what are we doing here? We don't have any good news at all. No, that is not the meaning of this verse. And it's contradicted even in the letter of John. We've already seen it. We saw in chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So does John mean to say you have to keep God's commandments perfectly or you are not a believer? 
Well, then he needs to go back and erase chapter 1, verse 8, because he said, if we say we have no sin, if we're saying, I keep God's commandments perfectly, you're tricking yourself. And then even at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. So he's saying in chapter 2, verse 1, it's possible for a genuine Christian who has an advocate with the Father to sin, if anyone does sin. So we know that the word keep does not mean for you to be a true Christian, the evidence is you always perfectly keep every command of God. So let's all get your handkerchief out, okay? Whew, that was close. Thankfully, that's not what that means. Now, the word keep here is in the original, is in the, what we call the present tense. And in the original, what that simply means is usually the present tense refers to something that happens over and over, or the, for something that happens in an ongoing sense. It's not you who kept God's commands once or twice in the past. It's not you who keep God's commands once or twice a year, and the rest of the time, do whatever you want. It's present tense. He's saying you have to keep ongoingly the commands of God. Now, of course, those of you here who have the analytical engineering mind are already thinking, how regularly? I want a chart and a graph that tells me how many of God's commandments must I keep? How often? What's the ratio of keeping God's commandments to breaking God's commandments by which I know I am a Christian? Well, I don't know if you've noticed, there's no chart or graph here. Very intentionally, God doesn't give that to you. We know that if you, on the one end of the spectrum, simply do not live a life characterized by keeping God's commandments, if you just don't think of them and you just don't do them, you live the way you want to live without any reference to the commandments of God in the scriptures, you are not a Christian. You understand that from the passage. So that's one end of the spectrum. But we know on the other hand, it can't mean you have to keep God's commandments every single time or there's no hope for any of us. So there are the ends of the spectrum, and we're trying to say somewhere here in the middle is a person who's a true Christian, who keeps God's commandments, though not perfectly. It's not a Christian perfectionism where we simply stop sinning. Some hold to that. We don't believe that's biblical, even in 1 John. So how regularly do you have to keep the commandments of God? I'm going to say it this way. And I'll say it this way throughout our study of 1 John. You don't have to keep God's commandments completely, meaning 100% perfectly. You do have to keep them characteristically. Not completely, but characteristically. And some of you are still unsatisfied with that because that doesn't give you a ratio. It doesn't give you a percentage of how many times do you keep God's commands and then it's characteristic of your life. Look, you can't blame me. I'm simply the messenger. God has not given you that ratio. I can guess at why God is not more precise than this. Why doesn't he tell you? 50%? 60%? Why doesn't he give you something exact? My guess is that if God gave you an exact measure, keep the commands this much, and you're saved, we would treat it like a target by which we earn our salvation. This is, in fact, what happens in practice, not necessarily in theory, but in practice within something like Roman Catholicism, where you do have a sacramental system. There are clear external steps 
And although this may not be the official teaching of the church, in practice, what often happens is you feel, if I keep the steps, if I go to confession, if I go to mass, if I have my last rites, if I keep the steps that are practical and observable, and there's these seven, and so they're numbered, and I keep them, if I do that, I am saved. And the church does not officially teach you earn your salvation that way, but in practice, that's how it plays out. You feel like if you're a good Catholic, in some way, you merit this, that God would accept you into his kingdom. And bad Catholics still slip in, and those who are not Catholic, maybe, depending on your view. But you see, there's a clear standard set. It gives us a sense of, oh, now I know exactly what to do and how much I've got to do it. And so it gives us a sense of, oh, that's satisfying. But what you've done is you lose the gospel. Because you're now pursuing that as if that's going to grant you salvation. If you live up to that set standard, this percentage of keeping God's commands, then you feel like you've earned salvation. You worked hard, you earned it. Probably that's why God doesn't give you a percentage. (laughs) And by this we know that we have come to know him. Sorry if you're not a fan of grammar, but I do have to point out one more here, and it's important. Keep is in the present tense. It's ongoing. It's regular. We have come to know him. Have come to know is what we call the perfect tense. And it refers to something that already happened in the past, but has application in the present still. So what John is absolutely not saying here is by this you can come to know God if you keep his commandments this much. He's saying, look, we're not talking about you earning your salvation. We're talking about if you have already come to know God, how can you know you have? The keeping of God's commands is an evidence that you know God. What we're not saying here, John's not saying and I'm not saying is, if you don't know if you're saved, work harder. Keep a higher percentage of the commands of God. Get that nasty stuff out of your life. Do better. And once you're doing a certain percentage better of keeping God's commands, maybe he'll let you know him. (laughs) Well, where's the good news in that? (laughs) That is not what we're saying. You see the perfect tense? By this we know we've already come to know him. So if we've already come to know him, right now we're just looking for evidences. And an evidence that you know God is that you keep characteristic of your life, his commandments. John is not writing this line so that you who truly believe may be thrown into torments of self-analysis day after day with your great abacus here. I kept the command. I didn't. I kept it. I didn't. I kept it. I didn't. Does it add up? You're not adding into your assurance calculator. This is how many times I kept the commandments today. Does it add up to salvation? That's not God's intention. You don't see that spirit in this letter or here. That you may know. If you're a believer, this is an evidence you can look at. Oh, it characterizes my life, and it's supposed to give you a sense of assurance that you may know. Not that you may guess, maybe, that you may know. You say, how does that work? How do we know? If it does, if that's an evidence that I keep the commandments, won't I always be guessing, like, did I keep enough? Did I not keep enough? 
No, that's because your assurance that you are a believer, and we've spoken of this before and I have to say again, ultimately depends on the Holy Spirit of God who dwells inside you. That's your ultimate basis for knowing you're a believer. It's the only way you can have a full confidence. Paul says it this way, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So there is the Holy Spirit inside you if you're a true Christian and in an invisible manner, not audibly, invisibly and inaudibly within yourself in a sort of mysterious way bears witness you are truly a child of God and you cry out, Abba, Father. If that's the case, why does John say you need this evidence of keeping the commandments of God? Shouldn't that be enough? Yeah, it could be. But God has decided that the Spirit will assure you that you're a true Christian, not apart from, but through evidences just like this one. So it's still the Holy Spirit's work. But he's using evidences. That's why John can write this. So keep, what does the word keep mean here? It means that if you know God, brother or sister, if you know God, you will, I promise you, you will have been changed in such a way that you will, as a characteristic of your life, as the general tenor of your life, as the trajectory of your life, not completely, but characteristically, you will keep the commandments of God. That will be an evidence that you truly know God. Now, we've been talking about keeping God's commandments, like John says, but we need to talk about that second word, commandments. <laughs> Saying, what are the commandments that I'm supposed to be keeping anyways? Now, when you hear the word commandments, whoever keeps his commandments, maybe the first place your brain goes is into the Old Testament, into the Mosaic Law. Because there are many, many commandments given in the Old Testament, and you've read many of them. So is John saying, you can know you're a true Christian if you keep the commandments given by Moses on Sinai? No. <laughs> Praise God, no. Listen to the law of Moses given on Sinai here in Leviticus 19.28. Here's a commandment. You shall not tattoo yourselves. So if it's an evidence of your salvation that you keep that commandment, I'm not looking at anybody. <laughs> okay, and those of you who are snooty judging the tattoo people here, let me give you another one. Deuteronomy 14.8. It says, quote, And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. If it's an evidence that you truly know God, that you keep his commandments, and there you are going to lunch today eating a pork chop, or even touching a pork chop, can we then say, well, you don't know God. You're not keeping his commandments. This is why it's important for us to really clearly define what do we mean by his commandments. It was actually a great controversy in the context of the early church. So thankfully, we have a lot in the New Testament about it. There are, nonetheless, some Christians today who would argue, no, Christians are bound by the Mosaic Law to the letter, and we need to keep the festivals, we need to keep the dietary restrictions, we need to keep all of these commandments. I just want to point out that that's not even possible because so many, I mean, I don't know how many percentage-wise, maybe half of the Old Testament law depended on the existence of the temple in Jerusalem, 
which 40 years after the death of Jesus, just as he predicted, was destroyed. A large part of the commandments of the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament were sacrifices. We can't make those sacrifices today even if we wanted to. There's no temple on the Temple Mount. You can't do it. Just another confirmation that Jesus came to fulfill the letter and the spirit of the Old Testament law in Moses and that we are not bound by the letter of that law anymore. So you can get tattoos. Sorry, that's controversial. Think wisdom. Think wisdom, okay? Talk to people. But it's not inherently a sin here. You can eat a pork chop. It's not inherently sinful to do it. The law, the commandments of the Old Testament, were a tutor to lead us to Christ who fulfills them. Now, when you read the Old Testament, it is so far from irrelevant. Paul says these things were written for us. Even those commands I gave you about tattooing and about pork, even those commands do reflect something of the unchanging will of God, but expressed in that Old Testament context. So you may not be bound by the letter, but take tattooing for example. God prohibited it in the Old Testament, gave it as a command, not because he has something personal against the actual act of tattooing, but it is because in that context, that was a way of showing your dedication to false gods. Does God still not want you messing with false gods? Absolutely yes. Does the expression look a bit different today? Yes, it does. This takes wisdom to discern in Old Testament commandments, but the main point I want to make for you so you're not confused is that when John says you have to keep God's commandments, I don't want you to flip open Leviticus and think, oh no, I've got a lot of work to do. Jesus summarized the spirit of all the Old Testament commandments for us when he said, love God and love others. And in essence, that's what John is going to do in this letter. When he refers to God's commandments, he mainly means love God, which is shown in you living a holy life, staying away from sexual perversities and sins and immoralities, fighting that kind of temptation, living a pure and holy life dedicated to God, and loving the brothers, loving believers, serving others. Jesus said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So if you are a true Christian, you will strive to keep yourself unstained by the world. Not completely, but characteristically. You might eat a pork chop. That's fine. But you're still going to separate yourself from moral uncleanness. And if you love others, Romans 13.10 says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. All the commandments are summarized right here. You're not going to murder someone if you love them. You're not going to steal from them if you love them. So that's what John means. If you're confused, is that what John means? Then you can look down to verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him, God, ought to walk in the same way in which, you don't see this in the English, but he, it doesn't say he, it says that one. Now he's referring to Jesus in the same way in which that one Jesus walked. How did Jesus walk? He loved God and he loved others. Do you love God? Does your life reflect that you love God? Do you look different than you looked when you didn't love God? Is your relationship to sin different than when you didn't know God? 
every part of God's will that's given us directly in the New Testament is God's commandments. It's reflected in the Old Testament, though it's not to the letter. It's summarized as loving God and loving others, and it's demonstrated for us in the person of Jesus. Love God, love others. And John is saying, if you're a true Christian, that characterizes your life. And if it doesn't, you're not a true Christian. Again, these are evidences. I'm not saying love God more, love others better. John's not saying it, and I'm not saying it. I'm saying if you want to have an assurance, a rested assurance, am I a believer? Am I tricking myself or not? Then you look at the characteristic of your life, and the Holy Spirit uses that to show you, you do love God. You do love others. Your life does look different. Not completely, but characteristically it does. And that is to give you an assurance. Then you say, I know. By this, I know that I know God. So there's the first part. The point and purpose of this passage and this letter is to assure you who are true Christians, listen, you are true Christians and you know God and you are in him and his love, the love of God's perfected in you. But that's not all that John's doing right here because we've skipped a verse and now we return to it because John's interest is also in exposing those of you who are not true believers. Look at that in verse 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. That is a liar and the truth is not in him is just a very fool way of saying is a liar. You may say you know God. But if you do not characteristically obey his commandments, John, John says, you're wrong. Notice once again that although a false Christian does not keep God's commandments, there is something that makes them look like a true Christian, and that's this right here. They say, I know God. A true Christian and a false Christian both look exactly the same at the level here of confessing to know God. They would both say that. If you went door to door here in Indiana, especially here in Evansville, and you just knock, 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 do you know God? What would most everybody tell you? <laughs> yes, I know God. You say, okay, next door. You know God? Next door. Okay, the one atheist in Evansville, you know, but knock, next one. You know God? Yes, I know God. You go all the way through. I know God. I know God. I know God. And what John is telling you is Certainly, we want to give people the benefit of the doubt. Don't go around inspecting everybody's fruits. Oh, you know, God, don't have that attitude. But John does want you to know, especially for yourself, that among those who say, I know God, some do. And some are simply lying. That's what he says. They lie, and the truth is not in them. They're telling the truth, and they're lying. Don't think they're all telling the truth. Why would you say you know God if you don't? John's saying it happens. It happens. You remember Jesus' half-brother giving the famous statement, you believe that God is one, you're doing well. Did you know even the demons believe and shudder? So simply asserting, simply saying, I believe in God. No, even the demons do. 
According to the Pew Research Center, 72% of adults in Indiana claim to be Christian. 72%, large majority. But also according to the Pew Research Center, how many go to church or even just a religious service of any kind every week? Now we're at 37%, so we've cut it in half. How many are in a group that prays or studies the Bible together? Now we're at 27%, and you could go on and on. Look, going to church every week, being in a small group, or being with a group where you pray and study, okay, it doesn't make you a Christian. <laughs> trying to make that point really clear. Hopefully that's coming across. It doesn't make you a Christian to do those things. But John's talking about evidences that you already are a Christian or are not a Christian. And so you can see it's a lot easier to say, I'm a Christian, than to actually be a Christian. And even apart from the Bible, you see that maybe just in the statistics, 72%, it's easy. I know God. I'm a Christian. And then the statistics drop when you just look at the life. Does it look any different from an unbeliever on a Sunday morning or any day of the week? And for most, it simply doesn't. But we're not surprised because many of us live that way ourselves. And John tells us that's how it is. That there are those who say they know God, but they don't keep his commandments. Their life looks no different. There's no evidence of any sort of change in their life. But they say, but I know God. I prayed the sinner's prayer and I went up front to the altar with the music. And the pastor prayed for me. I was at the Billy Graham crusade. I did the thing and now I know God. And he's saying, look, if you look at your life before you did the thing, before you prayed that prayer, and then you look at your life after. I'm not even looking for a perfect obedience. I'm just looking for any kind of change here. And if there's no change, it's simple. There's no change. You may remember Jesus' famous warning. He was just as direct as John, and more so. He said on the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But who? Who does? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who keeps his commandments. On that day, Jesus said, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. A worker of lawlessness is someone who doesn't keep the commandments of God. They say, saying, here's their mouth, Lord, Lord, before I knew Christ, this was me. This is a large part of my life. Lord, Lord, you're my Lord. Or in 1 John, I know him. I know God. But Jesus says, but you're a worker of lawlessness. Your life's characterized by not keeping my commandments. They do not keep his commandments. Jesus said it even more directly and to you. And he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? What he's saying is that if you receive me as your Lord and Savior, a part of being Lord is I give you commands and you do them. So if you haven't received me as such, you simply haven't received me. Why do you characteristically indulge in sin? 
Not as something you're fighting and overcoming. It's hard, but you're fighting it and you're getting accountability and you're fighting, laboring, praying for it to go away, fighting it, struggling, fighting. We're not talking about that. We're talking about God forgives. I'm just going to do it. I want to do it. I'm going to do it. God says, don't do it. Okay, he'll forgive me. And I just keep doing it. And John says, how are you any different than a lost person? And he answers, you're not. You are a lost person. Why is it that you don't really fully love anyone except maybe yourself? And we all struggle with that. But this is just characteristic of your life. You're out for number one. And John says, if that's you, you're not a believer. That's not what a Christian is. You look the same as you looked before you prayed or came to know God or whatever. Then it simply didn't happen. Look, friends, even though these are very strong words that John gives us, you have to admit that they're not unreasonable. I mean, you all practice just the same sort of discernment in your day-to-day -day life. You go to the car dealership and out comes the salesman. None of the salesmen we know. They're very good, virtuous, but out comes not a good, virtuous salesman. And he comes out and he's got in front of you, wow, just a shiny, beautiful lemon. <laughs> And there it is. And he just tells you with all the pizzazz and finesse that he can muster, with fervor, with fire, letting his bulk come over. This is a wonderful car. I don't even know why we're selling it this cheap, but we're just giving cars away. Okay, all the talk. Are you going to say, well, he said it so confidently, it just must be true. <laughs> don't. What are you going to do? You're going to say, okay. And you're going to look under the car, evidences of rust under here in the underbody. Okay, you're going to pop open the hood. You're looking for wear and tear or problems inside. You're looking at the body of the car, evidence of a past accident he's not telling you about. What are you doing? You're looking for evidences. He says, hey, trust me, I'm saying it's not a lemon. You say, great, say whatever you want to say. <laughs> but what I want to know is what's the fact? What's the reality? It doesn't matter how firmly you say it. I want to know, is it a lemon or is it a deal? And you learn that how, not by listening closer to what he's saying. Oh, yeah? No. You do that by kind of turning away from that and looking at it and saying, does it look like a lemon or does it look like a deal? And John is simply saying the same for you. Looking at your life, it's simply reasonable if the claims of the gospel are true, that Christ sacrificed freely on our behalf for our sins means that the moment we trust in him completely freely, we are forgiven for everything and the grace that forgives us, as Titus says, teaches us to say no to sin and live righteously. If there really is what Jesus said in trusting in Christ, a rebirth, a complete change of your most fundamental inner person and principle. If that's true, then you should expect some change if you're a Christian. Unfortunately, in our country, there's been a long history of not emphasizing that. And many people feel like if you simply say you believe and in your heart of hearts, really, really hard believe, you're good, whatever your life may look like. But that is not true. You see that in John if you trust in Christ, you will experience a change. So do you have a lemon or do you have a deal? You look for the evidences. You ask the Holy Spirit to make clear to you, for yourself, all of us, for ourselves, make clear to me. This isn't God's way of making you not able to sleep for the rest of your life wondering if you're a Christian. He wants you to know, if you are a Christian, to know it. 
But if you're not, he wants to expose that to you so that you may become one. If you have looked to Jesus, he's not trying to terrorize you with these thoughts. But if you've not looked to Jesus, he is. And I would encourage you to turn to him. Don't be a lemon. (laughs) Turn to him and you will find all of the evidence of true belief in yourself. Let's pray. Our Lord, our Lord, we are grateful that you are shepherding us and leading us and guiding us and we are not tossed about by human opinion and whim, by a culture that changes, by ideas that are fad now and go away later, but instead it's your eternal and enduring word that for 2,000 years has told Christians these same exact words, that to trust in your Son is to experience a real and genuine change of life, to become characteristically those who bend the knee and submit to your will, not perfectly or completely. Lord, I pray that you would, by your smashing hammer of conviction through the power of your spirit, approach any who do not know you, who resist you, or who are self-deceived, and smash and destroy fortifications and any thoughts loftily raised up against the knowledge of God and remove them and destroy them by your powerful word so that those persons may come to know you and in coming to know you receive the power to keep your commandments, to be truly free, no longer enslaved to the devil and to the lusts of the flesh, but free to love others, to live in harmony, to fight against the things that destroy us, sin. And I do plead, Lord, too, with a message like this for those who do know you. I pray for those whose faith is tempest-tossed and weak, perhaps those especially sensitive and easily convicted. Lord, I pray you would not break a bruised reed. And if their wick is just smoldering, that you wouldn't put it out. I pray that they might, in keeping with this text, know that they know you. Your spirit can do this. I pray you'd grant them to see the evidences that you've worked, and in all humility to submit themselves also to your word, which gives them this assurance. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.